0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to another Ball Guy podcast with your host, Jeff Brown, and our guest, Chris LaSpada. Hi, everybody. This is Jeff Brown, the Ball Guy. And today our guest is going to be Chris LaSpada, one of the two elite tax experts on my team. He is the real deal. Welcome, Chris.
1: Thanks, Jeff. As always, thanks for the kind words.
0: Let's talk about small business owners today, okay? And I'll just dive right in with the first question. What factors, tax and otherwise, go into how a business is held? Cuz we all we know we hear about the C corp and the S corp, LLC, partnership and all the rest. What do you have to say about that for small business owners? How
1: how do they choose? Well, typically you have to ask them questions on what they're trying to achieve. What What is their goals and objectives? So, for example, the person that wants to just start their own business, whether it's going to be their main source of income or even what they would say a side source of income or secondary income, is you want to get an idea from them about their liability. So when you talk to them about liability, you say to them, you know, what is your potential liability in this in this new venture? So a lot of times, everybody might start to lean towards the sole proprietor because they see that as a very easy formation. It's You don't have to do a lot of paperwork, and it just goes on to your personal return. You know, nothing really changes a whole lot. But in our practice, when someone comes to us in that situation, we're typically re- recommending that they do an LLC, even if it's a single-member LLC. And it doesn't change how they're taxed. It doesn't change what they file. But what it does is it gives them that protection to limit their liability inside of that activity. So, for example, you don't want to have all your assets available in case of a problem if you're a sole proprietorship. At least if you're in a limited liability company, only the assets inside that company would be available if someone was to bring an action against you. So that's sort of the biggest thing that and that's the smallest scale that we see is should we have a sole proprietor or should we have a single member LLC? And a lot of times we're always leaning towards single member LLC just for that legal protection. Again, not changing anything tax wise, but that's that's where we start. Now then once you get to LLC, there is options. So if it's a multi member LLC it's generally taxed as a partnership unless unless you elect out of it. An LLC can, be, can elect to be taxed as a regular corporation, and then it can take that election from a regular corporation and do an S election and be taxed as an S corporation. So you can have an LLC that can be taxed as an S corporation if they want to do that. So now the conversation shifts to, Okay, I'm an LLC. Why would I want to uh, be taxed as an S corp, or maybe I just going to form an S corp from the beginning? And the reason that S corps are very popular are clients look at that as a way to potentially reduce their self-employment tax. So, for example, in an LLC, whether it's single-member or multi-member, the net income from the LLC is subject to regular income tax and both sides of the self-employment tax, which is 15.3% up to, I think this year they just raised it to $128,000. Is the social security limit this year. So in small business, owners are trying to obviously pay as less tax as possible, and they they find that an S-corp can allow them to do that because while they're required to pay themselves a salary as an S-corporation, they can pay themselves a reasonable salary, and that might be under their, what their total taxable income would be inside an LLC. So what they could do is look at it as an opportunity to reduce their self-employment tax. So that's why S-Corps are very popular. They do have some more rules to them. For example, you can't have more than 100 owners in an S-Corp. There's some limitation on who's an eligible owner. but That's why S-Corps are another very popular entity. I touched on a little bit LLC being multi-member, and some people might say, well, what's the difference between that and a partnership? Well, a partnership, you can actually have a partnership that is what I would say is an unincorporated entity, still a separate entity from its owner. You can still agree to split profits and losses the way the partners agree on. Um, it's just less formalized than an LLC and has less ability. Like, you can't change from a partnership. You can't elect to be taxed as a corporation and, and so on and so forth. That's, that's only when you're an LLC. The other entity that you hear about is what about a regular corporation? And the regular corporation, you don't see many small businesses doing it. The only small business that I've seen do C see corporations are taxpayers that are buying a franchise, and there's actually a way that uh, you can use your 401k dollars to purchase that franchise, but it has to be very specific in the formation. And the only formation that even can work in is a C-corp.
0: And let me insert something here. Based on what you just said about the very strict way you have to structure that into a franchise with a corporation, you don't want to try that at home.
1: No, that's definitely something that you're hoping that the franchise is providing the experts to advise you properly on that because this does have a potential to have extra scrutiny, you know, from the IRS perspective that they, they could be looking at these types of things harder because they know that there's more potential, that there could be a problem with how it was formed and how it operates.
0: Gotcha. Okay. Now, down, down. did you have any more on that question before I move on?
1: LLCs generally provide the most flexibility when trying to decide what entity you want to choose because S-Corps can be restrictive because everything has to be done per rata, meaning that the allocation of income has to be per stock ownership and the stockholder distributions have to be per stock ownership. So LLCs has more flexibility in that area, which is why I think we see more of them than we do S-Corporations. Gotcha.
0: Okay. Now, the second question wants to find out what changes do you foresee if personal or business taxes are indeed lowered significantly this year? Will will biz owners change entities necessarily?
1: I think that's still to be determined. We have gotten questions about Trump's statements about possibly lowering corporate tax rates. So when he says he's going to lower corporate tax rates, The S-corp owners are asking us, well, if we're a corp, that means he's lowering our tax rates. And I say, well, not necessarily. So then what you could have is the S-corp owners asking us, well, if the corporate rates are lowered, why don't we convert to a C-corporation and elect out of the S-status? So while that sounds like a good short-term plan to reduce your tax liability, it does have some long-term effects. Especially if you were trying to go sell your business later on. So I don't think we're gonna see a huge jump from S to C if the C Corp rates are lowered. I think that's more intended for the bigger companies, the companies that are operating significant portion overseas. But it'll it'll be interesting to see how that how that does play out. I mean, if you do have personal rates that are lowered you know, I think maybe you could see more people trying to start a small business. People having more money to invest. You know, so those changes, I think, you would see with lower tax rates.
0: So let me be devil's advocate on on one point you made. If the business owner has a C corp and it goes from thirty five percent top rate to say a seventeen and a half, which which would be a compromise between what Trump wants and and what the Congress is maybe going for. If it ends up to be that somewhere in the high teens like that, would it make sense to go from an S to a C because the the money, even though he pays himself a smaller salary, the stuff that he retains in the S-corp, if I understand it correctly, Chris, is still right. going to be taxed at his ordinary income rate. Uh, it's just that he's not going to pay Social Security uh, past a certain point and all that.
1: Well, you, you so, can still have the double taxation issue of... If a C-Corp wanted to pay dividends, you would still have those dividends where they weren't deducted as part of the net income of the C-Corp, so you have, have a higher taxable income for the C-Corp, and then those dividends would become taxed at the personal rates, uh, where in an S-Corp, yes, you're paying tax on the what I would call your share of the income that's on your K-1, but your distributions against that are technically tax-free because you're Paying tax on all the pass-through income, regardless of whether you receive it or not.
0: So the best of all worlds would be if somehow dividends were still taxed at roughly 15%, and it was made deductible to the corporation. That would be heaven on earth, wouldn't
1: it? Oh sure, that's and that's you know that that's the part that sounds too good to be true, but we'll see what happens. But yeah, that would be the the best case scenario. Yeah, I'm
0: not holding my breath. No. Let's move on to the third question. Are there business owners who shouldn't be anything but sole proprietors?
1: I, you know, I think probably the sole proprietors that maybe do some sort of consulting or low-risk professions is probably what I would say. Anybody that could do work where the risk isn't deemed that high, obviously everybody should have insurance regardless of what business activity they're doing. but. I think if you're, you know, if you were providing consulting services, if you were, you know, selling, I guess in the old days it was Avon or you know, any home-based product or there's something where the risk wasn't as high, the liability risk wasn't as high. Then maybe I would say, you know what, you don't have to go through the whole formation process, the time and the money to do an LLC, S corp, C corp type of arrangement, because with those arrangements come more administrative costs each year, possibly another tax return, you know, a franchise tax, depending on the state that you're in. You know, so you're, you know, then you might have to do payroll if you're an S-Corp. So you're adding administrative costs on for some of these other entities other than a sole prop. So that, they would be the reasons why I would say to a client, you know, just remain a sole proprietor. Okay. We do look right. at, I guess, just, just, as a, just as an aside if a client does do relatively well as a sole proprietor or even as a single member LLC, there's sometimes where we recommend that they incorporate just because of audit risk. Because we, our opinion is if a client has a gross schedule C of a million dollars, that that could be on the high end for their, for, you know, averages that the IRS has for schedule Cs. But if you take that same million dollars and, and, Put that in the S-corp bucket, so to speak. Now you're on the smaller end of S-corps, so you might have less I audit know. risk. Again, not proven. Everything's relative. Sounds good in theory, but, you know, we, we we generally will mention that to a client just, just as a due diligence. And lastly,
0: because I run into this all the time, I know I have more than one, but are there circumstances when folks should have multiple business entities, Chris?
1: Sure. I mean, we we see it all the time. Some of the split between entities just involves the line of business that they're in. So, for example, I, I wouldn't have my operating business, which is my accounting firm. I wouldn't also start a, you know, a wood ice franchise and just keep everything under the same entity. I would split mm-hmm. those entities, and that's because of the – because, again, one, I want to separate assets, and two, if I'm not doing similar things – that's another reason to uh, split those entities up. And, and also, a lot of our multi-business entity clients are involved with real estate, where they're, they have certain real estate under LLCs. Some of them you see have separate LLCs. Some of them are you know, getting into this concept of having a series LLC, where it's a little bit easier for tax reporting, but for legal purposes, they're separate. So a lot of our practice involves... You know, an individual, a family that have multiple entities, and usually it's multiple LLCs, which is no surprise. But we we see that a lot.
0: Gotcha. Okay. All right. Now, do you have anything to add?
1: Uh, the one thing I wanted to add, because it was kind of part of question one, is any client that owns real estate, there's generally the recommendation is always to have it inside an LLC. I have seen real estate inside C-Corps and S-Corps, and a lot of that is because I think there was there was probably, it either happened a long time ago or someone was misadvised. And the problem, if you have real estate in an S-Corp, is that you can't just convert that to an LLC because the rules with S-Corp are, if you're going to liquidate the S-Corp, it's got to be at fair market value. So if I have a piece of land, that I spent $100,000 on inside an S-corp, and 20 years later it's worth a million dollars, and I wanted to put that into an LLC and then subdivide it, whatever, for me to take it out of the S-corp and put it into the LLC, I would have to recognize a gain of $900,000. And uh, I don't think too many taxpayers are very excited to do that.
0: Ouch. Well, no. let me add the real estate investor uh, view on what you just talked about. If you're paying cash for improved property or land, it's just, it's whatever their, their tax advisor says is the best way to hold it if it's not in their own name, okay? Right. But if you're borrowing money, and especially most of the people are borrowing money because they're buying some form of income property, usually residential, and probably 80 or 90% of the time, it's one to four units at a time on the property, and they're borrowing anywhere from 50 to 80% of the purchase price. Now, when they do that, the lender says, you know, they have the due on sale clause, the old nemesis that basically says, John and Mary, you're the ones that we lent to. If you go out of title, you owe us the balance of the loan. And so typically over my 40-something years, they don't care if you if you immediately transfer it to the family trust. Because they know that's still you. But if you've got an LLC, which everybody says to do it because of liability, the younger investors today, and I'll say younger, meaning under 50, because the last time there was blood running in the streets because of this topic, Chris, was in the late 70s and early 80s when interest rates rose quite a bit. And buyers were taking properties subject to the existing loan without notifying the lender. And the lenders were foreclosing all over the country, right and left. And nobody, no lenders really doing anything like that now. All these people that are are confident that they can take their LLCs and put it in title after they've already gotten a loan are, I think, somewhat unwisely comfortable. Because the only reason that a lender would call that is if interest rates took a big jump and then they would not be happy that their 4% money uh, has been taken over violating the contract when the current interest rate is six and three quarters. Making sense?
1: Sure, yeah.
0: And so I, uh, I really recommend that people look into and get some serious, not only tax advice from guys like you, but legal tax advice as it relates to having their LLC take title when they just got a loan. Now, if you have a portfolio loan, the difference that matters is that typically it's without recourse. And they're only looking at the property in case you stop making payments. But if it's with recourse, which means they can go after you, that LLC in a rising interest rate market at some point, the lines are going to cross and lenders are not going to be your best friend anymore.
1: Well said. I mean that's that's the biggest thing with debt and LLC is and it's right on the K1, recourse and non-recourse. And most investors, I should say most investors, but you know, it's amazing how many clients, you know, don't take the time to ask about that before they get involved into a financing deal and once they find out what that exactly means, you know, sometimes there's a uh, one of those aha moments, oh, I wish I'd known that.
0: Oh, and listen, Chris, uh, I can tell you from, from experience that there are literally, in my estimation, hundreds of thousands of loans out there, maybe millions, where they have done this, and they actually got advice that it was okay, and they've been happily whistling down... The path right next to the cemetery, not knowing that if interest rates go up and they go up just like they go down and when they go up, it's generally at a lot bigger velocity than when they go down and lenders get real upset when they have a billion and a half dollars out at an average of a much lower rate than is available now. And they find out that three quarter billion of that money has been in violation of the of the note contract. At that point they start playing hardball and there's a lot of people who I, who I think will be innocently opening up
1: mail that is not going
0: to bear good news.
1: I agree. <laughs> I mean that's uh that that's going to happen.
0: Well, enough of that happy topic. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, thanks for joining us today, Chris. You've really uh as you usually do, added to the knowledge of of, of listeners big time. Really appreciate it. Thanks a lot.
1: No no problem. Thanks, Jeff.
0: Listeners, thanks for joining in and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Bald Guy Podcast with Jeff Brown and our guest, Chris LaSpada.